सचिनंदन गौर हरि की श्रीमन महाप्रभु की श्री श्री गो नित्यनंद श्री हरि नाम गौर भक्त वृंद की तो 
Bhutto. Pranam, welcome to all of you. Thanks so much for your presence and nice introduction. Thank you. And uh, <clears throat> again, very humbled and honored to be able to share with all of you today some further thoughts on an ongoing, endless conversation that we call Harikata, sometimes also known as Anantakata, which basically means to talk about the unlimited. So by definition, if the conversation about the unlimited has to be unlimited, it doesn't make sense. Let's have a limited conversation about the unlimited. So, so that's the, the journey we are in. We are pilgrims on this journey of trying to say something about the unlimited. That's a very challenging <laughs> project, so to say. Say something about the infinite, okay? <laughs> Many times people meet me in the street like this and they ask me, so what you are all about? And I'm like, where to begin, what to say? Do you have three lifetimes to hear the answer or something? This so. This is what the scriptures say, when we try to say something about the unlimited, the absolute, we can, we can just say as much, as, as much as we can, but it's just touching one point in an infinite line. So in one sense, hopefully we can find some satisfaction in today's meeting, but also hopefully we have the experience of some divine dissatisfaction that we can always say more. So that's a healthy symptom, hopefully you can buy. So <clears throat> the invitation for today is to talk about a topic that has been selected for today is in search for the ultimate personhood. In search for the ultimate personhood. So that's for me an interesting topic, especially in connection to my recent book on radical personalism. It's another way of saying ultimate personhood. What does it mean to be people? What does it mean to be individuals? How present we are in our individuality, how much we can develop who we are as person, how we can understand that we are surrounded by persons. You are a person, I am a person, God is a person. Even in our tradition, this world is a person, all called Bhumi Devi, everything is personified. <laughs> so how do we relate? To everything in ultra personified terms. That's what we call radical personalism. We are not only personalists, but radically personalist, personalistic to the root. Radical means something to its very root. And I personally have this conviction, this inspiration that many of today's crises uh, can be addressed and healed by a proper emphasis on this idea of radical personalism. For example, today, in today's world, one of the main crises is the crisis of meaning. Many people are having a hard time finding meaning to life, to who they are, and they find they are struggling so much trying to, to create some meaning, to create some designation, some way of seeing themselves, seeing everything that makes sense. So it's a deep, profound crisis. I remember when I I read, maybe you know this book, if not, another one suggested for the reading list, Viktor Frankl's 
man's in search of meaning. Add that one to your list, please. Do me a favor and do yourself a favor. So basically, he's mentioning there that actually the goal of life is not um, happiness, interestingly. And he's not suffering, of course. He's not promoting masochism for everyone. So he says the, world of the goal of life is meaning. In other words, whether you are having a great time or a bad time, the goal of both situations is to find some meaning in that, extract some purpose. And he walked his talk because his, his writing of that book comes from his experience as a prisoner in the Nazi camps in the Holocaust. So he was in that situation where everything seemed meaningless. Like, why this is happening? What's the purpose of that? And that took him to find purpose, even in a situation where it doesn't seem to be any purpose whatsoever. And he found that. The only way I could survive, he said, that experience is by finding some meaning and purpose to me going through that. I, he was not having a good time. He was not being happy. Uh, but he found meaning and purpose, and he could survive because of that. And he observed those who, how to say, were not able to deal with that situation anymore were those who concluded there's no purpose at all in this. So you, you lose sight of meaning and purpose, you basically find life has no further purpose, meaning. So I personally feel that one way to address this meaning crisis globally, and we are not totally free from that, probably, <laughs> is by, again, discovering not only who we are, but who we can be, what's all our potential. Not only seeing us for who we are now, but for all that we can be. And that's a very generous and broad and profound meditation. Try to think about, try to ask yourself this question, not only who I am, but what's all that I can be. That opens the door to unlimited possibilities and exploring those ideas. So for me, radical personalism has to do with that, the ultimate personhood, how I can connect with my ultimate side of as a person, what's all I can be as a person, as an individual, as a soul, as consciousness, and how can I relate to everything and everyone in a personal way not in an impersonal way. And in that connection, I bring the topic of impersonalism. We, we touched upon it a little bit these days, because in our particular tradition, and I think all of you are familiar with it, so no need to further introduction. I can go to the root, radical. <laughs> uh, we talked about how we are officially a tradition who is personal, personalist. We worship personal gods, two personal gods <laughs> in this case, sometimes five, sometimes ten, das avatar, and you name it. You tell me a number and I can we find it an expression of the divine corresponding with that. And be careful with ending up with polytheism. That's a tricky scenario, worshiping many gods. Now this is one person expressing in many ways. So, <clears throat> although we are personalists, and radically personalists, as we will see, sometimes some shades of impersonalism can filter in our way of relating to ourselves, to others, to the world, even to God. Although 
on the card-carrying member level, we are part of personalism. In order to attain the ultimate personhood, we have to detect all the forms in which we are still dealing with everything impersonally. That's part of our anarthanibriti process. Anarthanibriti doesn't only mean I chant and everything magically disappears. No? It means I chant and I try to pay close attention to what's going on, no? what's happening in my inner landscape, what things are moving, what's, what things are being triggered. Is there something that I need to address? Is there something that I need to work on? Mm -hmm. So what we were talking today, we will be talking today is part of this anarthanibriti journey, so to say, how to accompany our chanting and our practice with some vigilance and some awareness of, you know, what's the chanting bringing my attention toward? Mm -hmm. I, I'm sure many of you may have heard a few times someone chanting and eventually saying, after I started practicing, so many things happened in my life on a catastrophe level. Mm -hmm. no? <laughs> you may have different testimonies. Some others will be everything bloomed beautifully. Some others... Depending on where in your journey, the chanting will create different dynamics, so to say. So we, we need to pay attention to in which direction the waters start to move as a result of our practice. So one of those is, again, to detect uh, the presence of impersonal features or depersonalized features. In how, again, how do we relate with ourselves, with other people, with this world, with God himself. So I like to explore a little bit those four directions and I will probably beg for your collaboration, for brainstorming together a little bit. <laughs> in, in certain, in some ideas that may come, for example, in which ways we are being impersonal with ourselves. Can you think of any way in which one can be impersonal with oneself? Um, not acknowledging our feelings. You might be angry or upset and just not acknowledging that. Okay, yeah, thank you. So not acknowledging our feelings or numbing our emotions for whatever reason, but not allowing, not acknowledging that that's going on, basically. I'm not trying to throw that to the basement or to the bodega, they say here. Shed. Shed, whatever the word. <laughs> So that's a way of being impersonal, of not allowing ourselves to, not acknowledging our full personality, so to say, our full being. What else comes to your mind? Something else comes? Not acknowledging where we are on the path of bhakti. Mm. Sometimes we can think, I'm so much further ahead. Mm. Sometimes we can even think, no, I'm so much further behind and I'm mm. false humility. So just <laughs> not being honest with where you are so you can move forward. Okay, thank you, beautiful. We are going somewhere now. <laughs> yeah, I'm repeating a little bit also because the ones who are seeing live maybe do not hear what you are telling. Mm -hmm. So, so we are now. The idea came that not acknowledging where we are on the path of bhakti, or basically misacknowledging, because we may say, no, no, I'm here, or you're here, or I'm here and you're here. So these are these two varieties of missing the point and not taking the time to acknowledge where we actually are and over idealizing our situation or self-idealizing our situation. And the two of them may be an escape, an evasive thing of 
confronting where I am. No? It's always more, it's always easier, so to say, to think I'm higher than I am, so I don't need to deal with what I actually have to deal, <laughs> or I'm lower than I am. So I'm so low, so falling that I cannot deal with what I, what I have to deal actually. <laughs> so the two may be like, yeah, escape from the present moment. And we can only exist in the present moment. As much as our mind tries to go shopping to the past and to the future, no? future, Rajaguna, past, Tamaguna, nostalgia, excessive nostalgia, excessive preoccupation of what will happen in the future. Sattva, which is a place we have to begin with, is the present. And the present, in English, I can make this play of words, not in Spanish, my native tongue, but the best present you can give to yourself is to be present in the present. <laughs> if we want to use the word from all the possible no, layers. The best present you can give to yourself, like a gift, is to be present in the present. Sometimes we don't want to be present in the present because that's challenging. We have to confront where we are, who we are, all this beautiful, but anyhow, that's another way. Thank you for the idea. Something else coming? Being critical, being critical yourself. Being overtly critical, critical with ourselves. Yeah, yeah, thank you. To be overly critical, critical with ourselves, uh, guilt trips, mm. as we say these days, bringing our collection of 108 whips and starting <laughs> the parade. Number one, bring me the second, second three, and I am this, the, and I'm so bad. I mean, the, and we over identify with that negativity to a point that we lose sight of who we are, where we are, what's up to us. So, yeah. Thank you, that's another one. So lack of self-compassion, if you want to put it from another place, no? Which is important, as we were talking before coming here, I had a podcast, so that's always complicated because if I'm giving a lecture and half an hour ago, I gave another lecture, probably half of my lecture will be about what I was talking half an hour ago <laughs> because it's impossible not to relate. So we were talking about how we, if we are not compassionate with ourselves, it's basically impossible to be compassionate with someone else. <clears throat> because you cannot extend what you don't have. If what you have not had an experience of. <clears throat> so that's another one, yeah. That's another way of being impersonal with ourselves, not treating ourselves as a person, as a whole person, not, not embracing the whole equation of what it means to be a person where we are now as a human practitioner now, because we can say we are the we are the soul we are not this body and it's okay but also we are in a particular situation where we there is a body there is a mind there is psychology there are emotions uh, there is a pocket there are financial concerns <laughs> there are different layers that need to be addressed and integrated in a healthy way so and all that can be offered to Krishna. My, my balanced mind can be also an offering to Krishna. As we say yesterday, the, as, as we will turn to that point, relationship with others, that can be an offering to Krishna. We only impose limits of what is an offering and what is not an offering. <laughs> so anyhow, you gave a good amount of ideas. Jamuna has another one. 
No, it's not my beard. It's uh, in regards yep. to not being compassionate to myself. Yep. But then, you know, like you're saying, um, overly critical of ourselves. But then that can, it's almost, it can, maybe this is my own personal experience, it's like, say it before anybody else does. I can put myself down before anybody else has a chance to put me down. And therefore, you know, um, if I if I go, if I say that I'm good at something, or I feel like I'm good at something, then maybe I'm just being proud. Mm -hmm. and look at you, you're just so puffed up. Mm. So then there's that side of things as well. Yeah. But as also we know, as we know, there is a place to say this there is this famous story, as you mentioned that from one disciple of Ramanujacharya. And uh, he was a very remarkable disciple. And he was very good basically in everything. No, He was very, I don't know, very knowledgeable and he cooked nicely and he sang nicely and he dressed nicely, whatever. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, once his god brothers came to him and say like, wow, you cook so nicely. I say, yes. And you sing so beautiful, say, yeah. And you know so much. Yeah. <laughs> he, so he was affirming all this praise that came to him. So his God brothers became concerned, like, oh, maybe he's entering the puffed up arena, so to say. Uh, so they went to their guru, to Ramanuja, and said, this devotee, we love him a lot. We are concerned that he may be entering into the arrogant loop, so to say, we don't want that. So they were genuinely concerned, but so Ramanujacharya called this devotee and he told him, okay, your brothers are telling me this, they are concerned because they say that they told you you sing nicely, you say yes, you cook nicely, you say yes, you know a lot, you say yes. <laughs> um, so I don't know, do you have anything to say? So he said, yes, Gurudev. If I cook nicely, it's just because of your mercy. If I sing nicely, it's just because of your grace, Krishna's grace. If I know a lot, if I do whatever I do nicely, it's only because of your unconditional love of me. So if I deny that, I'm denying the power of your mercy in me. I will be ungrateful and I will be proud for denying your grace in me. <laughs> so Ramanuja Chair was like, okay, this is... Yeah, this guy really does everything nice <laughs> in every sense of the term. So my point is something that on some level, of course, on some level, someone may say, yeah, I do everything perfect, but not acknowledging Krishna's grace, that's arrogance. But on another level, the same, another person says the same thing, and it's a symptom of humility. <clears throat> so you have to see in which stage everyone is, and there is a like a corresponding expression of humility for each stage, we could say. No? Anyhow, thanks for the contribution. <clears throat> yeah, something that also comes to my mind before we turn to the next category in relation to how we are impersonal with ourselves can be that we just engage in our practice, spiritual practice in, a, in autopilot, so to say. No? Like that we just, one side fits all and we just do it very formulaically without paying attention to who I, who I am and how to practice bhakti in a very personal way. But it's just, I have to do this, 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 there I am. Which, as we say, 
There is place for that in the beginning. There is license, kindergarten license in bhakti. <laughs> in the beginning, we may be a little bit more generic, but in time, we need to to think deeply and to feel deeply. Okay, what what, what do I want to offer to Krishna? I have to have a reply for that whenever Krishna comes. Says, so, what do you want to offer? And I'm like, I don't know. I never thought about that. And so, it's important that we also invite each other to to invest our individuality and our personality for the pleasure of Krishna. I remember reading this book that we shared yesterday, Unspoken Obstacles on the Path to Bhakti. Interesting one. And the author, Purnachandra Swami, will say that once he asked one devotee, one Vaishnavi, young Vaishnavi, so what's, which service would you like to do for, would you like to offer Krishna? And she started crying in, intensely for a long time. And he was like, whoops, sorry, <laughs> what did I trigger there? So he asked her like, why are you crying so much? She said, because in, I don't know, probably 10, 15 years of practicing, nobody ever asked me, what do I want to offer to Krishna? I was just told to do whatever was needed to do, to be done. But nobody, my, how to say, my individuality was a concern. No? So I was moved by that invitation, so to say. No? <clears throat> So anyhow, a few words on, on how we can be impersonal with us, and therefore by being impersonal with ourselves, we cannot reach this ultimate personhood, this ultimate sense of being an individual, and therefore we cannot relate to God as the ultimate individual. I'm pointing to that ultimately. Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead. But if we do not develop our own personality, how can we relate with the Supreme Personality? Hmm? So we have to get rid of this impersonal layer so we can really relate with that person who is the most personal of all. Hmm? Krishna is very personal, very specific, very individual with each one of us. So we have to be prepared with that for that ultra-personalistic interaction. Hmm? <laughs> so let's, let's move from how we can be impersonal with ourselves to how we can be impersonal with others in our relationships with other people what what comes to your mind of course all the things that we mentioned so far can be applied to our relationship with others because if i'm impersonal with me that that applies that will be affect how i relate to others so any thoughts how to be impersonal with others i'm not i'm not Promoting that, just in case, I'm asking. <laughs> Don't edit my class like this and say, <laughs> yes. We have a quick set, so a quick false ego, but actually we can minimize our view of other people. And it's a reflection of one's self, like, you know, if you stay out of one, if you have a very false ego, Mm. Okay, thank you. So we have this famous Sutra Manjati Jagat, the one, the one, the way your inner world is projected to the outer world, basically. No, the, the way you see the outer world is you are seeing what's going on inside of you. So, yeah, that's one of those. No, like, yeah, minimizing others.
taking yourself too seriously, so to say. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, not allowing the other person to be all that they can be, but just you are this. As we talk these days, labeling and putting people in boxes and yeah, you already are this. And I'm not treating you as a person. I'm just treating you as a thing to be put quickly put into a box because before you become a problem, so to say. <laughs> what else? Yes. Not giving someone your full attention or your full, full heart when you're interacting with them. Okay. That's a raise your hand, the one who has never failed in that one. <laughs> All hands down. Okay. So we can feel part of something in common. We have something in common. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a classical one. I'm not being fully hearing and present to the other person. Listening. No listening it sounds so simple, but as we say, no Paul Tillich will say the first duty of love is to listen. He's a Christian theologian, very interesting author. The first duty of love is to listen. If I am not willing to listen to you, how much I'm willing to love you. So, but listening is how to say it's challenging because if I really listen to someone, I will be transformed by the other person. Because listening to someone is being there, present, opening myself to what the other person has to say. And if I open myself, I may be affected by what's coming transformed and many of us are afraid of changing so many of us are afraid of listening because listening implies transformation and sometimes the idea of transformation gets us a little bit nervous <laughs> we prefer to stay where we are and don't change my landscape but li real listening is willingness to be transformed and that's the beginning of love and love is what most transforms us that's a paradox of love, right? Because in love, love is the thing we most desperately need and want. But since love implies the fullest transformation, love is the thing that we fear the most many times. <laughs> so we are desperately in need of that, and we are desperately running away from that. <laughs> so that's the contradiction of probably the human situation of many. And we rather we are trying to solve that contradiction and open ourselves to love. So. I was going to add that when you see others as means to fulfill your own desires. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So seeing others as a means to fulfill your desires, like basically objectifying people. No, you are not a person, you are a means, a bridge to my agenda, so to say. <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't sound very romantic. <laughs> so instead, instead of saying to the person, you are a bridge to fulfill my own agenda, you probably will say, I love you. That, that sounds better. <laughs> of course, we can say I love you from the right place, but many times we may say I love you, and actually there is, you are a bridge for my agenda. Even unconsciously, no? we, we, are, we, we may be moving that place. So. Yeah. Something else, some other form of impersonal listening? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that will be the way to counteract 
the opposite of that would be ungrateful. Be ungrateful will be a form of impersonalism, and the opposite will be to express gratitude. Yeah, thank you so much. What else? We were talking yesterday also, and not being willing to open and trust and be vulnerable in relationships, not being willing to be who we are to the other person, which has to do with listening also. It's all tied somehow all the things get together. But that's a way of also being impersonal. I'm not fully myself, fully vulnerable when I have to, no? because again, as we say, we, we cannot be fully vulnerable to any, in front of any person, of every person. But when we have to and not doing that, that may be impersonal. We are denying our self-experience of who we are and the others as well. What else? Let's extend that idea of impersonalism to <clears throat> how we relate to this world. Because that can happen also. As I say before, in our tradition, everything is personified. This world is not seen, it's not seen as a lump of soil or matters, a person. We call it Bhumi Devi, many other names. So I will say first part is by not treating it as a person. <laughs> that's impersonal. I mean, if you are a person and I do not treat you as a person, that's impersonal. So this whole material creation is described in personal terms. Even Maya Shakti, material energy, is a person. And it's not a bad one, just in case. In case we got this idea of Maya Devi is like a witch that wants to throw us down and see us suffering and trying to see the way to find the cracking to enter and corrupt all our integrity. That's not how it's working. Maya Devi is a servant of, of Bhagavan, of Krishna. That's what the Bhagavatam is saying. Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur comments in a famous verse in the Bhagavatam, says, Maya Devi is a Vaishnavi with the highest devotion. She's serving Krishna. He's one of the Shaktis. So, so I thought, wow, she's a Vaishnavi with the highest devotion serving Bhagavan. Probably better than I, how I am serving Bhagavan. <laughs> and if he, she's a Vaishnavi with the highest devotion, and we think, all oh, the material world is so disgusting. You are committing Vaishnavi Aparat. No? So watch out for that one. <laughs> I mean, don't want to get new roses into anyone, just to let's be properly considerate and, and respectful. So again, one way to be impersonal with this world, not treating this as a person, or not treating this in the world as something sacred. Because sacredness or profanity, as they say, beauty lies in the eye of the beholder. So you can say the same with Sacredness lies in the eye of the beholder. If you have the proper eye, everything is sacred. <laughs> in our tradition, we will teach, we have Paramatma in our heart, but another aspect of Paramatma is in every atom. So if in every atom is an embassy of the Supreme Lord, <laughs> how can I say, this is profane, this is disgusting, this is bad ontologically, Rejectable. That's that's the world they're done. 
sorry, I'm giving all the ideas myself in this case. Just a comment on that, but we would, you know, that we, there's a quote that Shirley Crawford says that, you know, this material world is a toilet and you just, you just do your business and get out. Oh, wow, I never heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was intense. You don't make yourself comfortable in the toilet, it's alcohol, you just do your business. And, there, there's people who really get comfortable in the toilet and they have these magazines and all that stuff there. I remember first time I entered one of those bathrooms, I like, why all these magazines? <laughs> so what to do with that? Quote. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. there are many other quotes that, no, the other day we read one, I think, when it was, which lecture I cannot remember, but Prabhupada said, He's referred to matter as so-called matter, in the sense of if you have the eye to see properly, matter is not even matter in one sense, it's potential paraphernalia. So the way to understand those statements, and there are a few, I won't deny that, even not from Prabhupada himself, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is saying, Dukalayama Sarshvatam. This material world is a miserable and temporary. So it's like, Okay, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> but then you have other statements from, I don't know, Prabhupada Nanda Saraswati, he will say, Chaitanya Chandrambrita, Vishwam Purnam Sukhayate, which means this whole universe is an abode of joy. So you, you have to do something with those two statements. No? You cannot just cherry pick the one I like the most. No, You have to. Harmonize, harmonize, samamboya, says Vedanta Sutra, tattu samambayat. Have to reconcile and understand why no? miserable and temporary an abode of joy. It doesn't seem the same. Um, so the explanation is basically these statements go for different types of people, for different audiences. So in some moment, Prabhupada will say something, not making a point to someone in particular, and at other moment, he will say something that seems to contradict it, but actually is not contradicting. It's just pointing to the specific situation. So, for example, the example that I give in my book in this connection is if a mother knows that the child wants to, I don't know, to put his finger on, a, on the plug, and the plug is a little broken and the child just came from the pool, he's with hands with water and he's like wanting to, to relish the rasa of being electrocuted. <laughs> <laughs> we are explorers when we are children, we want to, so, but the mom knows, I mean, you can die basically. No? But for him it's just, just a little no? intensity only. <laughs> I can survive, but the mom knows, no, no, that can kill you. But he, she, he knows, she knows she doesn't have too much time to explain to him rationally all the electrocution process and, and so on. So he may tell him that plug is bad. There's a, is, there's a monster inside there. If you put your finger, it will eat you. That's not true, but that's preaching strategy, you can call it. <laughs> no. Emergency, I have to save the life of this boy. So that's bad, don't touch it. So the kid will be like, oh. Then you have time to explain actually what, what's that going on. Sometimes the scripture may talk like that to certain people. Material world is bad. 
get out of here. But when you are in another level of maturity, it's like, you don't need to go outside of anywhere. The goal of our practice is not to go out, transcend samsara. That's called mukti or moksha. Our goal is prem. And prem, one of the qualities of prem is moksha laguta krit. That's bhava even, not even prem. Bhava means, in, when you reach bhava, moksha, or the fact of living this world, becomes insignificant. In other words, you no longer care for going back, coming back forth. I mean, Mahaprabhu says, Sikshasta come forth. Birth after birth, I long for service to Bhagavan. So birth after birth means I don't care coming here over and over again. As long as I can practice bhakti. Bhakti is the sadhana, bhakti is the sadhya. Bhakti is the means, bhakti is the goal. So I'm trying to practice bhakti now, so I can practice bhakti in eternity. It doesn't change. That's the uniqueness of bhakti. Other, other pasts, the more you get closer to your goal, the more you minimize your sadhana. Like if you engage in karma for attaining swarga, some rituals and whatever to attain select heavenly planets, you do lots of... Uh, how to say? Um, anyhow, you fast, you do lots of tapasya on this world, so you qualify yourself to enter Swargalok and enjoy like mad there. <laughs> That's interesting. You deprive yourself a lot here, so you can enjoy a lot there. So the closer you get to your goal, the less you will deprive yourself, <laughs> and the more you start enjoying. So the sadhana is one thing, the practice and the goal you want is different from the practice. You get my point? The same with jnana, knowledge. You practice in a certain way, but if you want to merge in Brahman, the closer you get to that, the more you abandon what you were doing as a practice to reach there. But bhakti is not like that. The more you practice bhakti and get closer to your goal, the more you practice bhakti. <laughs> because there's nothing else that we want to do apart from that. It's not like, like, like the famous example when someone asked Srila Prabhupada, uh, what's the result of chanting Hare Krishna? No? And the person was, he could feel the intention of the question, which was, what's the fruit? No? Some, something for me, something, something. He said, the result of chanting Hare Krishna is that you will be able to chant more Hare Krishna. No? But he replied in a very naive way, in a very innocent, natural way, like, is you will be able to chant more. Because we don't want to do anything else apart from what we are already doing. That's the beauty of bhakti. Try to think about that. In bhakti, you are already doing what you plan to do for eternity. So hopefully, you are enjoying what you are doing. <laughs> Because if not, it will feel like hell. I was sent to eternity to do the exact same thing that I hate here. So, so that's the idea. We are already doing here what we will be doing forever. So that's beautiful. So in that sense, I don't care for going anywhere else because I'm already doing what I will be doing for eternity. So what if you're chanting and you don't have much of a taste of the holy name? And then to think about, you know, like you say, it could feel like hell. 
Now, for eternity, you. Yeah, I think you 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 know my point to that. No, I mean it's not that for eternity you will lack taste in chanting. No. <laughs> the difference between what we are doing now and what will happen in eternity is that whatever we are doing now will be done with full realization, with full love, with full taste, and with full how to say, with full self forgetfulness also. So we won't be too much attentive to how much we are enjoying something or not. So that's an important point. We are not chanting Harinam to relish the whole thing ourselves. No? Because that can happen also. We can make the whole spiritual experience something that enjoyable for us. And and I, I'm not denying that on some stage you need to feel something. <laughs> but at advanced stages, you no longer care for feeling it yourself, but with giving pleasure to the object of your love. And I think it's good to know that, at least in theory, to know, yeah, that's the goal, although I may be a little far from that, but to have that clear so we don't commit the mistake of just conceiving the practice in terms of make me feel something. No? Because we can become addicted to that. Like It has to make me feel something. It has to make me feel something. And it's kind of a dopamine pill or something. And I've seen sometimes devotees, okay, I will chant some rounds whether to feel something <laughs> or to numb things that they are feeling and they don't want to feel. And the idea is neither of both. <laughs> the chanting is not to, like, I'm, my mind is agitated, I will chant so my mind is no longer agitated. Okay, I, Krishna accepts some beginning approaches, like he says in the Bhagavad Gita, someone will approach me for money, for knowledge, for stopping the suffering, welcome, join the tribe, but in time, let's refine the approach, so to say. Let's not cheat ourselves and think, oh, this is the, okay, I joined because I was suffering like hell. Okay, but what happened when you stop suffering like hell? You leave? <laughs> or you ask yourself, so now from which place will I continue participating? Because the beginning, my motivation was to stop suffering. But what would, when suffering stops? Then you, you are able to realize, well, the goal of practice, practice, practice in practice is not to stop suffering. There's way much more. But first, I needed probably to solve that situation, so to say. Yeah. I have kind of two questions based on what you were saying. That sometimes in Krishna consciousness, it can feel like when something is the, the stopping of the suffering. Yeah. It, it, you know, you do activities that feel very fun and exciting. And it, how do you know, how do you discern between what's a material experience? And I mean that in a obviously respectful way, but just the social dynamics or just doing something that's good and around friends, around that release and that suffering. But it's not, it's on a more material level in the sense of, it's like, for example, in Kirtan, I enjoy it a lot because I have musical inclinations and I feel like I'm in Kirtan <laughs> most of the time because I like it, not necessarily because I'm trying to offer it to Krishna. 
So I guess my question is, how do you understand where there's a difference? What is the difference between doing something because you enjoy it? Which seems like on a material level. Hmm. There may not be, but it feels like a material level. Hmm. And what is actually doing something for Krishna? That's one of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, of course, there's things are not black and white. So, at least in good part of our journey, there be, there may be a mixture of this motivation. It's not like you know, it's only your enjoyment, or it's only for Krishna's pleasure. Then between black and white, as I like to say, there are so many varieties of gray. So. And it's important to understand this part of the process. Now you cannot just like overjudge yourself and I'm a cheater and here just exploiting the kirtan. And because I hope not <laughs> to that extreme. And so to say, there may be some personal desire. I like music, as you say, I have this musical DNA, some scars. So naturally I'm drawn to that. And it's okay in one sense. In one sense also, how to say, it's your nature. You can put it like that. One has some acquired nature. Not everyone will be a musician, but those who are musicians have a nature. And also the scriptures say you have to have your nature relatively balanced. No, I mean, if you're a musician, you cannot force yourself to be a lawyer or whatever. No, <laughs> You may be like too disturbed to properly engage in Bhakti. So also to engage my musical skills, so to say, in Kirtan, yeah, it may be a personal consideration to have my humanity imbalanced. And I think there is a place for that, but also again, there is a place for uh, going, after that foundation is placed, okay, where to go from here? I'm not denying that. And I, I wouldn't see that as material. I personally choose not to like create this like dichotomy, not this division like that's material. But actually, this I'm trying to balance my humanity so I can be a balanced human being and offer myself to Krishna from a more sustainable place. So I, I may need to be balanced by engaging my musical skills and. And that's okay. Again, of course, if we compare ourselves to, as I said the other day, don't compare yourself with Raghunadas Goswami. If you put, if we put those highest preferences, Raghunadas Goswami will never be doing something like this. By contrast, I'm so selfish, and you start like. But the point is, I'm not Raghunadas Goswami. I'm inspired by him, and hopefully, we can get closer to his example. But in sustainable installments. No? So also we have to advance in bhakti in a way that is sustainable for us. And, and that's somehow related to your question yesterday, no? that also we want to advance in a way that is sustainable, but also we don't want to cheat ourselves about like, oh, it's okay. And as you say, no, I'm honest and Krishna is merciful and he knows my honesty. And But actually, to be honest, and I don't want to go back to yesterday's talk too much, but to be honest, it's not so easy. You know, someone may say, Krishna doesn't care if you make a mistake external. He only takes the essence of your attitude. If you, if you think about that, that's way challenging. 
<laughs> in one sense, you may say, oh, that's so easy, so generous. Krishna is not considering external faults, but takes the essence of my attitude. That's challenge. I mean, that implies, what's the essence of my attitude? <laughs> no? And I think that's a healthy... I mean, that's a healthy exercise, as I say yesterday, of introspection and vigilance. If you are in Kirtan, to go to the example, and you yourself say, you can analyze, okay, from which place I'm participating here. It's fully musical, 75 musical, 25, no? 63, whatever. How do I get closer to the 108 devotional percentage, so to say? And it may take time. Uh, but I would say that's basically how, you know, having this introspection and trying to, and that's how I also like, in, in my personal opinion, it's my personal opinion, taste, not imposing anything, but in Kirtan events, for me it's good that in between Kirtan there are some words about what we are doing. You know? So even if we are getting too much to the musical sphere, there may be some reminder, hey guys, here we are for this. So, okay. Oh, thank you so much. We are landing back. Okay, let's continue the kirtan. <laughs> Next kirtan, maybe we... Okay, let's come back here. No? And so on and so forth. Um, something about the first question. But there is a second one. Yes. Thank you, Raila. That's very helpful. Okay. Uh, I can empathize with you. I'm also a musician, so I know what does it mean to have... Musical some scars. I was playing before drums, guitar, bass, keyboard, tabla. So I have to like, okay, you play, you do the kirtan. Like, uh, bring, give me the gong. Yeah, minimalist, forced minimalism. <laughs> I mean, not to an extreme, but sometimes it's a good discipline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My second question was how, just before we were talking about different ways of being personal to ourselves, mm. and the whole point is that we are personal. We have a personal connection with everything around us and individuality. Somehow or another, my whole life, I feel like Krishna consciousness or getting to the ultimate goal actually feels impersonal. Because in my head, I envisioned it's only about Krishna, it's not about you anymore. And the whole goal feels like, think about yourself less, give yourself to Krishna more, mm. and that feeling of like tolerating or sacrificing or austerities is, yeah, the idea is the whole point that we are here is because we wanted to be self-centered. Mm -hmm. So having that sort of- Bell battery, please charge. So you have my answer? <laughs> I, I know it was not what you expected, but there is a very cryptic message inside that. So how you can read the words. Even it was, was given with a tone of voice very different. So what did she say? That the battery is dying? Okay, I think, I mean, you can hear me even without this. So yeah, we can continue. Yeah. So, the, yeah, my question is, it feels mm -hmm. even like when you imagine, oh, you know, when you get to the spiritual world, you'll be a blade of grass amongst millions of blades of grass, and you're like, 
One day Krishna will step on you. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Feels> like hell. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. <laughs> Somehow, like, impersonal, in some way or another. And I know it's obviously not. That's my only conception. Somehow, I picked that up mm. in what I've heard. But how is it not? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're talking about how it's not, but. No, no, I get, I get yeah, it. Yeah, feeling like you have to give up your own desires and your own. Yeah, the point is that you don't have to. Mm. No, when we enter into the have to narrative, that's when it becomes a problem. Because it's not voluntary. You said, I have to. Implies, I wouldn't like to, but I have to. So it's not a voluntary decision. It's kind of a forced no, thing that I have to do if I want to go there. But even if I play out my idea of there, I don't know if I want to go there. <laughs> so I will go bring it back to this point of I have to and the importance of not not conducting ourselves in our practice from the I have to. Of course, there is some place for the I have to, some level that, I don't know, sometimes there's a part of us that is not very willing to collaborate, let's say, <laughs> and you have to use your intelligence and say, I have to. No, I know, I know this is good for me and I know I have to. I'm not denying that. But it's delicate because if you you can get an overdose of I have to as well. And every, everything ends up being I have to. I know people that live their life from 24-7, I have to. Like basically they are saying, it's not my, it's not what I choose from my heart. I have to. So that's the message they are giving to everything they do, to every person they meet. I have to. I, I will prefer another life, but I have to. And this is subtle, like victim consciousness. And it's not taking responsibility in our lives. I do it because I have to. I will have been doing something else, but I have to. I probably, no, don't, you don't have to. Or probably you, you, choose, you chose something before and you have to take responsibility now because of that. That's another way of saying, for example, I remember giving a lecture a few years ago I was giving the lecture, and at the end, one person raised, that was in Argentina, one man raised the hand, he was a little nervous, the hand was trembling, and I was like, oops, let's see what comes here. Um, change of color and some sweating coming, and he started to talk very loudly, telling like, okay, you can talk all the things because you are a Swami and you are, you are single, you don't have kids, so you have time to study and try, start to get, and then he said, but me, I have eight kids and I don't have time to do anything because I have, I have to. <laughs> and he was like, it was not about me. He was just like, and the only idea that came to me was, but you chose to have those eight kids. No. So basically don't complain. That's your choice. No. It's your choice. Take responsibility for your choices. And, and if you don't want to do something, don't do it. And take responsibility for not doing it. But take responsibility. Don't complain. I, I mean, I'm not saying you are doing that. I'm just going to the point. But and of course, I told him, even if I, <laughs> I became a monk to avoid 
having children and dealing with the stuff you are dealing, I did the wrong move because I, somehow I have people under my care and they are way more than the ones I can have biologically as children. So if I accepted sannyas not to have children, I did it wrong. <laughs> of course, I didn't accept sannyas because of that. But So I think it's important that all of us, this is not personal, I mean, this is a reply to you, but I, I extend it to all of us, that we take some time to think from which place I'm practicing, from which place I'm chanting. I'm chanting because I want to chant or because I have to. I'm chanting or I'm counting. And I'm praying to finish. <laughs> chanting should be praying, but not to finish. <laughs> But I've seen so many times that we end up doing something in a way that basically the message we are giving to Radha and Krishna is, I hate doing this. Do you think that type of chanting will take you to Golovinda? <laughs> Try to understand what message Radha and Krishna is receiving. Well, like, I hate doing this. Every time I'm doing this, I like so little. I mean, I'm praying to finish it as soon as possible. And they're like, please stop doing that. They are, they are crying. Stop, don't torture yourself in that way. <laughs> so, so I think it's, it's, it's important that we, there is a place to address our practice in a way that is inspiring for us. No? It's not that, oh, you are creating your own practice, you're speculating, this is the only way to do it, and if you don't like it, you are wrong. No, it's not like that also. No? I mean, the, Krishna is generous, and there are so many, so many ways to practice bhakti also. Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu Rupa Goswami showing 64 ways of attaining perfection in bhakti. He gives example, I don't know, of Chandra Kanti. She's a lady who danced all night before the deity. And she attained perfection by dancing. With this, I'm not saying stop chanting your rounds and just dance one night and you're there. <laughs> but I'm giving examples that, okay, there are ways that we can address the practice in a way that is inspiring for us, relatable. So, and that will extend into the idea of we have about the spiritual world, so to say, no? Because spiritual world is not a, I mean, nobody will force us to go there to begin with. <laughs> so we will only arrive there if we want to go there. And we will, all, of course, only will want to go there if we like the place, if we are attracted by that. <laughs> And if it's too much at this stage to hear about certain things, for example, what you mentioned, okay, I will be a blade of grass and at some point I may be fortunate enough to be stepped on by Krishna. That's all. That's what you will be for eternity. And, and for us, the our idea of being a blade of grass here, because we cannot conceive fully what does it mean to be a blade of grass there. So we will just to go to the blade of grass of the park there, and some people walking on that, and and he's like, I don't want to do that. No, to be honest, Krishna. No. <laughs> and anyone says it's okay, Krishna will say, Yeah, I understand you. It's okay. No, but he will also say it's not that blade of grass. No? It's, it's not the way. So sometimes we have to be open to doubt about the ways we are conceiving some of those things. No, it's not as terrible as it may sound. If it sounds terrible, then it's, it's not like that. If you have an idea of God or about the spiritual world that is like not very inviting, 
probably we don't have the right, the correct idea. And, and not to torture ourselves, just to be open to probably I'm projecting some experience here, like we were talking the other day, I think in Switzerland, about um, their suffering in the spiritual world. But there is a different type of suffering. But for some people, this is not possible to think. So that's delicate because I know that's also my responsibility. I'm giving a class and I'm saying something like that and someone is coming from, I don't know, her mother died two days ago. And I say something like that, that person will be totally triggered. <laughs> I say, I don't want suffering. I, I don't want to go to the spiritual world. I'm suffering so much. So I totally understand. But still there is suffering in the spiritual world. But it's a suffering that is categorically different to what we know as suffering here, it's suffering in love. So since we don't have an experience of full love, we cannot know what does it mean. We hear the scripture saying it's, a, it's sweet, it's deep suffering, it's ecstatic, but we don't have the experience. So our own only resource is going to the suffering we, we know here, and it's like, I don't want that. <laughs> so that's going on there for eternity. No, thank you. <laughs> I'll go to Swarga with this karma candies for a few <laughs> years. No, it's okay. I'm going. <laughs> so in that sense, I think it's important that we we don't rush into this conclusion. This is spiritual world. No, thank you. No, Mahaprabhu is, I don't know, Rupa Goswami is saying he's sweating blood in Kambira. And that sounds like, how is it in English? Gore? Gore. Not gore. No, it's gore. <laughs> And it's like, I don't want that. You follow my point? Because again, we will relate what does it mean blood here? What does it mean? But the point that the scripture says, it has nothing to do with what's our experience. And so probably, probably unless we have, until and unless we have some deeper experience of what's going on there, it may not be healthy to hear so much about those things, those descriptions, because we may relate them too much to our experience here and, and think, I don't want to be that blade of grass. I don't want to. But it's important that we can understand being in the spiritual world is a place where, and this is a paradox. We are totally, we have forgotten about ourselves, not by force, by, by naturally being in love. I think all of, have, all of us have a glimpse of that and I don't want to make the full comparison, but I think most of you have had some experience of falling in love with someone else. <laughs> and and you forgot who you are. You're just absorbing the other person. Like, mm -hmm. oh, there are butterflies and all this stuff going on. <laughs> of course, then the honeymoon is over and you have to deal with the real stuff. <laughs> but my point is, you have a glimpse of, I'm not aware of myself, but it's not miserable. And I'm not forcing i have to stop thinking about me it's just like there's a higher force that takes you there so there's a place for that but also at the same time when you have forgotten yourself in divine love is when you are most yourself it's not that you are being deprived of who you are and also srila siddhar says this and i like this a lot he says in the spiritual world you will be absorbed in in thinking about serving everyone, but everyone will be thinking about serving you also. I mean, Krishna is the center, but 
everyone <laughs> receives what they need. So it's not also this idea of, oh, if I think too much about others and forget about myself, who will provide for me? Because in time we may have even some, I don't know, it can happen in some cases, some unresolved trauma from childhood. We had some hunger periods. <laughs> you think this idea, forget about yourself, I will die of hunger, who will provide? Some unconscious trigger. So, so yeah, I, I, will, I will say we have to, to find a definition of the spiritual world, which is still realistic, but it can also speak to our particular stage. You know? Spiritual world is a place of beauty, of charm, of harmony, of collaboration. I hope that sounds a little bit more plausible, <laughs> that we may find like, of all the things that we find inspiring in this world, that we find nourishing, try to take those things and multiply them unlimitedly. And that and much more is the spiritual world because that, that's what it is. <laughs> And all these other things that may we may still not be fully to fit in, in time we will be able to to put them in place. So, yeah, I don't know something. Thanks for the question. That's great. So anyhow, we were talking one hour ago, <laughs> but that's I'm open to that journey. We have a few more minutes, so I'd like to share a few more words. We already share a few examples of how we can be impersonal with ourselves, with others with this world, by not treating it as a, as a person, as something sacred, by practicing a world denial religion, as I mentioned, um, by rejecting things instead of integrating, like not seeing God present everywhere. At least in theory, reminding ourselves Krishna is omnipresent, how much we are aware of that on a daily basis, how much we think on a daily basis Krishna is present, always, everywhere, instead of He's over there, way far above the clouds in the future. Instead of feeling him, he's a present person in the here and now, instead of he's a future person far away. Which is how we conceive the things. And it's important that we ask ourselves, how do I relate to Krishna? I feel him far away. I project him above the clouds. I project him as not here now, but somewhere else that I will meet hopefully in the future, or I know that he's in my heart as close and as intimate as anyone else can be <laughs> in the present moment. I suggest the second option, just in case, if I was not clear enough. Yeah. Because if not, we end up being impersonal with God also, which was my last category, impersonal with ourselves, with others, with this world, and with Krishna. Krishna is... Is a person, is the supreme person, is the supreme personality of Godhead. But sometimes we can relate to him in pretty impersonal terms. <clears throat> As I put in my in my book, God is not a, a concept, he's a person. But how do we relate to Krishna? Do we relate to Krishna as an idea or as a real person? Are we are we I'm not asking here for public confession. Just you have to ask yourself, how do I relate to Krishna? Is he a concept, a theological concept, or he is a real person that I have a living experience of? Because that's the idea. <laughs> it is that God is not just a thought. It may begin as such, but 
we want to develop a relationship with Krishna and not develop a relationship with an idea. <laughs> no. no, it's not that, okay, husband and wife, you are relating to each other as ideas. No, <laughs> I love you, my darling idea. That's like, where, where to sign the divorce here? <laughs> no. We are people, we are individuals. So Krishna is the most personal person, the most, the most individualized individual. So we have to, we have to be careful that we don't limit God to an idea. And also, even if we have an experience of Krishna, that our experience of Krishna remains open to further upgrade. Because you can have an experience of Krishna, I hope so. But that doesn't mean that Krishna is only that. He's that and much more. But if you are too attached to your experience of Krishna to remain always the same, you are not allowing a further development in the relationship. So when Krishna wants to be more in your life, you will be so attached to your experience of Krishna that you won't be able to recognize, oh, that's Krishna. Because Krishna is supposed to be this in my life. <laughs> and he comes in a deeper way, in a bigger way. It's like, what's that? Let's run away from that. Krishna, help me. And Krishna said, that was me. <laughs> Getting closer. That's interesting. That happens sometimes in our practice. When I feel Krishna disappeared, I don't feel it. And actually, he's closer. But when I say, I don't feel it, we are talking about that idea we had about him or our or the experience we had so far until that moment. So this is Krishna, but now Krishna is getting closer. But I never, I never experienced him so close, so I cannot recognize him. <laughs> so I say, where is Krishna? I don't see him. He's like, I'm getting closer. That's me also. <laughs> Instead of thinking, he left me. That's interesting. That can happen. I've seen the Buddha saying, Krishna, he, Krishna left me because I cannot feel him. And actually, he's getting closer and you are too attached to feel him in a certain way. And a relationship is ongoing. Relationships change. It's not that you will always experience the other person in the same way. Mm -hmm. that's, that's boring. But it's interesting how many times we project these ideas. Krishna has to be this. Okay, don't move, Krishna. Be always, be a good boy. Be always the same way. But that's the last thing we want in any relationship. <laughs> they follow. So sometimes we contradict. You know, we have a relationship and we want the other person to be predictable. To be okay. Don't surprise me. Don't be. Don't do unexpected things. Remain in my comfort zone. Do what you are supposed to do. But after a few days, we are like. Do something else, change, no? surprise me, overwhelm me. <laughs> and that's love. Love is pretty unexpected and overwhelming. Love moves like a snake. How does a snake move? Like this? No, no. A snake moves like this, crooked, which means unpredictable. You don't know, oh, it will go like this, then goes, turns right, turns left. No, no, it's like, I don't know which will be the next movement. That means love. It's like if you dance, I'm coming from Argentina, you have, may have heard about tango. Okay, I hate tango personally. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I'm resorting to that as an example. <laughs> as, because it's pretty chauvinistic as well. No? In tango, the man leads, and the woman has to just allow herself to be led. Again, I'm using the example. I'm not promoting 
anything beyond that. <laughs> but the idea is, uh, if you allow yourself to be moved, you don't have an idea what the other person person's next move will be in the dance. You don't have a clue. But if the person is an expert dancer, in this case, the expert dancer is Krishna, and you are being danced by him, through him, you don't have even to think what the next step. You just allow yourself to be carried by the expert dancer to the unexpected following move. Are you ready for that? That's love. If you are not ready, okay, nobody's forcing you there. <laughs> but at least we, we, we have a real idea of what that's about and we gradually prepare to trust the dancer. Krishna is a dancer, as we know. He's not the bar. He's the king of dancers. So we should trust the king of dancers. He knows how to do a, a good tango move. <laughs> and he's not dancing tango. I don't want to project my Argentinian <laughs> some scars into Golok, sorry. <laughs> Anyhow. So that's a way of being impersonal with, with God. No? But also not allowing him to be all that he wants to be in our lives. Something like that. Krishna wants to be so much in our lives. Sometimes we, we may be like, mm, it's okay, Krishna, you can stay there for a while and we can relate from that place. And Krishna will respect. But it's also nice that he receives the open invitation to, okay, come closer. I want to know you more. Let's continue the dancing. <laughs> and in fact, another way of not being fully personal with Krishna is basically not being concerned by developing our relationship with him. And I'm not saying this to fill you with guilt, guys, just in case. It's not like, I'm not doing that, I'm failing in that. Oh, Maharaj, every single point you mention, I'm failing in that. Thank you for this e wonderful evening torture. <laughs> I appreciate you so much, Maharaj. <laughs> I'll arrive home and I will burn your book. <laughs> <laughs> I have a ritual waiting at home for me. <laughs> and not, not, not to get as discouraged, just to be realistic and honest and try to acknowledge those things that we can improve, basically. So it's important that every day that comes, okay, if I'm practicing bhakti, I want to show some concern to develop my relationship with Krishna. Like any relationship, it needs development. It's not that you get together, you fell in love, you got married, that's it. The relationship sustains itself automatically. Not at all. <laughs> it needs daily investment, you know, daily sacrifice, daily. It's reciprocal. So the same with Krishna. Important that we, in a healthy way, loving way, how can I we develop this? He's already concerned about that, but it's, he's inviting us to participate. It's a two-way street, no? our connection with Krishna. It's not just one-way street. That's, don't expect that he does everything. Don't be so cruel to Krishna. You do everything in the relationship. He'll say, that's not a relationship. <laughs> so in this way, I brought some points regarding impersonalism because impersonalism is the antithesis of personalism. And in principle, we are radical personalists. We want to embrace this principle to relate to him, who is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So if we want to be, <clears throat> as I mentioned in my book, to connect with the Supreme Personality of Godhead, we have to develop, to develop the Supreme Personality of ourselves, so to say, which is our personality 
supremely developed, basically. Mm -hmm. So now, a few words that I want to share today with you on this idea of in search of the ultimate personhood. Of course, Krishna is the ultimate person, and we are in the search of him, but also to meet the supreme person, we have to do something with our person, so we can relate to him in deeply personal ways. So we have a few minutes before concluding. I don't know if there is any other, any other comments or questions. I had another topics to share in mind, but of course, the snake moves in a crooked way, so we were led to wherever we had to be led, so that's okay, perfect. <clears throat> spoke a few times about developing relationships and that can be an offering to Krishna and how how to do that is, is my my first question tagged <coughs> on to that is uh, an understanding of sometimes you know, people have a difficult time with preaching Krishna consciousness outwards some people love it other people it's very difficult you know, with that so can can develop our relationships within the community. Um, how can that be an offering, and is that a legitimate offering of preaching in one sense, keeping ourselves united? Mm. There's two kind of questions mm. there. Yeah, well, the idea of <clears throat> the word preaching, uh, of course, we can speak about sharing the message with with newcomers, but also there's a way of preaching to those who are already devotees, what Prabhupada will call boiling the milk. You have heard about that. Oh, let's boil the milk, which means let's, let's condense and thicken what we already have and go deep into that. That takes time. No? Again, that's the bell of our relationship with Krishna. Let's become more and more Im embedded in our practice, in our education. So... So yeah, on one side, offering, developing our relationships, it's in itself an offering, it's in itself a... I mean, Krishna is pleased when his devotees are getting along nicely together. I mean, that's important to understand. He's happy when that's going on, and that, that takes time. So, but as, as we were speaking yesterday, that I remember uh, Radha Damodar make the question about there are many projects no, that are that Prabhupada established and they need to be developed and sustained. And that's perfect. But we have to remember what's the what's the project inside the project, so to say, because you tell me I don't know, name him, name one project, and I will ask, okay, what's the purpose of that project? I don't know, give me an example of a project, please. So what's the purpose of that project? Why? What was the purpose of that? What does prashadan makes to people? That's my question. What? Why? Yeah. Why? Why you give prashadan to people? I mean, I'm not. I'm not against that. I'm just playing the, the exercise here with you. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that's that's a legal answer. <laughs> so my point is, the whole project 
converges into igniting the seed of bhakti, so to say. Mm -hmm. So my point is caring for that particular individual in internally. And you, you name any other project and the idea is that we became like boiled down, boiled down to the same point. No? Care for that particular individual to get closer to Krishna, if you want to put it like that. Mm -hmm. So that's the actual project. No? So it's important even if we are dealing with many big projects and managing and things that require, are required for a project, we don't lose sight. The actual project is always care for the people. No, individually for their internal situation. So, so I will say that that's in itself is a very important offering. I mean, to 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 address the projects with that personal idea. I mean, whatever we are doing is trying to benefit each particular individual. Don't get loose. Don't lose sight of that. Krishna is supremely pleased by that. And in connection to what you are asking about. Okay, sometimes we are sharing the message, some people is receiving that, some people is not receiving that. Well, uh, of course we have to ask why they're not receiving that. No? It's not just about, oh, they don't have security or there are these labeling everyone like, no, probably, probably we need to be, I mean, at least in my opinion, it all begins by establishing personal friendship with people. It's not so much about hey, read Bhagavad Gita. Maybe too much for someone. First, personal approach, no? personal connection. And, and also not having, at least this is my opinion, but sometimes we also have to ask ourselves, what impels me to preach? Why do I want to see other people chanting, for example? I mean, I'm, I have, I'm not against that, I'm just asking, it's healthy for you to ask why. Because sometimes we may think that's compassion. Hopefully so. That's the idea. But sometimes <laughs> I've seen we want other people, we want, for example, we want people to become devotees. So we have other people doing the thing that we are doing. So if everyone else is doing what I'm doing, then I must be doing the right thing. You follow my point? No? I will explain. So I'm doing, I'm practicing bhakti, but my faith is not too high, so I'm not too convinced of what I'm doing. So I need to convince all of you to do the same thing I'm doing, so you convince me back that I must be doing something okay, because all of you are doing that. <laughs> to follow. So sometimes that can be the unconscious motivating factor to preach. I want to see the whole world chanting. Why? <laughs> to follow my point? Because if everyone is chanting, then it must be that I'm doing the right thing. But you don't need the whole world for you to feel that. You have to be convinced out of your own. This is what I choose, and this is the right thing for me. Just an added feature in connection to the point of preaching, because sometimes we can overemphasize that without a clear and from which place we have to do it. And for me, it's very interesting. I mean, I don't like to use the word preaching. I like to go to the, I like to, and I say this because sometimes the, the implications of a word may, may carry some other connotations that nowadays are no longer the original ones. I like to use the word prachar, which is the original word. Prachar is translated as preaching, 
But what does it mean, prachar? So we understand what do we actually mean by preaching prachar. Achar, what does it mean, achar? Achar means acharya, achar. Achar means like good behavior, let's say. No? Acharya is one who teaches by example. So achar means example. Prachar generally translates as preaching. Pra means a very special type of. So pra achar means a very special type of example. But that's translated as preaching generally. So that's interesting because actual preaching means a very special type of example. You are given a good example, that's preaching. In other words, that's a, preaching is you are practicing from, from such a nice deep place that you are getting so filled with mercy, inspiration, and that starts to fill you, fill you, fill you, fill you, over, overflow you, and sprinkle other people. That's preaching. It's not so much, I try to convince you to sell you the book. That's not preaching for me. Preaching is, I'm, I'm so alive with what, what I'm doing that it becomes contagious. That's how Mahaprabhu preached. He just practiced <laughs> seriously, and that became contagious. You follow my point? That's that's implication of pra achar. You behave in such a good way, that's an epidemic. How did Mahaprabhu convert to the most powerful jnani in the whole world, Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya? He just sat in front of him in silence for a week. That's it. He didn't say a word. But his achar, his presence, his example was such that after that week of silence, Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya was completely <laughs> converted. Mahaprabhu said two, three words like checkmate then, and that's it. <laughs> but his silence converted because his example, what, what exuded from him was so powerful, even he didn't say any words. There's this quote, I think, from St. Francis. He said, always preach the gospel, and whenever, that's, whenever it's necessary, use words. <laughs> like implying the main preaching is not sometimes what you say but how you walk your talk like a father with the kids no? you can say so many things to your kids but they will be watching what you do after what you say and that will be the actual message, the actual influence it's not so much you can say so many things but how much you walk your talk that's the, the power the power in that. So, I don't know if whatever I'm saying makes any sense to your questions, but <laughs> that's where I'm coming, you know, in connection to how to connect to others and how to, yeah, offer our, make our relationships offerings. That's for me beautiful. Just conceive every relationship as an offering to Krishna. To reframe, it's not just my wife, my kids, my mom. It's also that, but <laughs> this is an offering to Krishna. So I had the chance, because if not, it becomes ordinary probably. Oh yeah, it's my wife. Yeah, on a daily basis, we really, we know each other. It becomes too familiar. Too, but instead, you, you don't lose sight of seeing my relationship with her, with him is sacred, is part of my service, part of my offering. So that reminds each other, wow, this is extraordinary. No? We are not just wife, husband, dealing with ordinary daily stuff. We are trying to 
offer our relationship for the pleasure of Bhagavan. <clears throat> yeah. Something else before we conclude? Any other question or comments or whatever you may like to share? They are doing their part in the kitchen, as you know, so. You have one question or you are counting? Oh, oh okay, okay. <laughs> it was like this uh, sound, yeah. <clears throat> Fallible? Sound of like imperfection. Mm -hmm. How does imperfection um, uh, what role does it play in relationship to the Okay. That's a whole lecture, minimum. That's a whole visit to the UK. <laughs> but a few words. Yeah, thank you for the question. So what's the role of imperfection in our relationship with Krishna? Between the Jiva and Krishna, what role imperfection plays? Yeah, like, like um, is that dependent on the Jiva and Krishna? Imperfection is um, uh, a positive quality hmm. that's integral to the spiritual identity. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> now we require two more weeks for replying. <laughs> <laughs> You're making it more complicated, more beautiful. Love it. Yeah, that's a very interesting topic. I remember some years ago we made a whole series of lectures on that. We call it Divine Imperfect on, on the Damodar Lila, but analyzing Krishna showing so-called imperfection, limitation, being tied, not stealing, lying, escaping, all things that we say like, that's, that's not God, that's not correct, that's not perfect. <laughs> and Krishna showing, I don't care. <laughs> I'm still Christian. I can do whatever I want. And imperfection is adding charm. So how much is imperfection if, if it's not? Like Christian is tied by Jasoda. So the tying, we can take it, that's limitation. No? Imagine the idea. God is tied to a mortar. That's like, you make your head collapse. No? God is supposed to be transcendental and free all-powerful, and here he's being tied. But in that tying, his loving interaction with Jashoda is increasing. So love is increasing in limitation. So how much is limitation? The more love there is, the more freedom there is. And we will say that. Freedom, more, the more the love, the more the freedom. So Krishna is tied, which seems there's no longer freedom, but he's experiencing more and more love, which means more and more freedom. So he breaks with all these ways that you, we used to think about things. So that's on the side of Krishna. But on our side, as we mentioned the other day, 
Krishna is already loving everyone unconditionally. That's an important point that we can never emphasize, emphasize enough. In the scriptures, it's very clearly mentioned <clears throat> the nature of love is unconditional. So unconditional means I'm not waiting for you to be perfect to love you. That's not unconditional love. It's conditional love. Because we are conditional, we are conditioned beings. <laughs> but Krishna is unconditional. It's like we are, we are a mess, but he already loves the mess. Now it's our turn to reciprocate, of course. But, <laughs> but it's not that Krishna is saying, I don't, I don't love you, I hate you, or I don't love you, because you are imperfect. So that means that love is limited by imperfection. But that's not the case. Love is the most powerful thing in the universe. So even if imperfection comes, that's nourishing the love. Love takes whatever comes in the way and gets nourished, gets, gets strong. So, so I will say that imperfection has a role to play because sometimes we get, of course, with this I'm not saying make as much mistakes as you can, be as imperfect as you can, and Krishna will love you more. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, there, even you can be a pure devotee and, and make mistakes on some level. Or, or maybe we may have to speak about different qualities of mistakes. Because if someone is a surrendered person, in that sense, that person is perfect and is not making mistakes. The heart is in the right place. But still, there may be mistakes. You know? I don't know, the famous example of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvati Thakur mispronouncing a word in a class. And the devotee saying, okay, from now on, the dictionary has to change. Because we have received the divine revelation that this word actually is pronounced like Guru Maharaj has done. They were like absolutizing that mistake. And everyone was like, wow, such a degree of faith for Gurudev. But Srila Siddharmaraj was there and said, no, no, that's not correct. He mispronounced a word, and we have to correct that in service to him. And that mistake is not compromising his inner position. You follow? So technically, that's imperfection, but on, on, on a certain level. No? There is this other situation, as you may know, at one point, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, he, he had, there was a big festival where they were about to install a deity. So all, many of his disciples were there and different people came from the government and big event. But Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur was coming from, a, from another city by train to perform the Prana Pratishta, which is a part of the ceremony where the Chari invokes the presence of Krishna in the deity. So everyone was waiting for him to come. And he was on the way of the train. At that time, there was no WhatsApp. No, I'm late, one minute more, 15 hours. So, so he was on the way. And, and everyone, everything was getting too late. So the devotees were like, what to do? Should we wait for Gurudev? Or someone else should do that part of the ceremony? So the event goes on. So at that time, they asked him, Srila Siddhar Maharaj, who, who was among the devotees present, considered like the senior disciple of Bhaktisiddhanta. And he said, let's do ourselves the, the rest of the ritual. Guru Maharaj will be okay with that. So they did like that. And Srila Siddhar Maharaj conducted the, 
that part of the ritual. And Sulla Siamaras was not precisely famous for being an expert into all the ritualistic aspects of the, the installation. But he was famous for being who he was internally, you know, being having internal deep connections. So that's the most important thing. But anyhow, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur arrives later and one of the devotees asked him, Guru Maharaj, we, I want to know if the deity is, if Krishna is actually there in the deity, if the deity is actually installed, because the person who did the installation part of the ceremony committed some mistakes in the ritualistic process. And Bhaktisiddhanta Sarvai Thakur replied, interestingly, he didn't ask which was the mistake, he asked who was the person. He didn't care for what did he do or not. He said, who is the per according to who is the person I can tell you if Krishna is there or not. <laughs> so someone replies, so let's see the Say, Krishna is there in the deity. Next topic. No? Like implying, even if he did some mistake, the wrong mudra, the wrong detail in technical aspects, the heart is in the right place, Krishna is there. Yeah, imperfection at some level, but in a deeper level, but I think imperfection is an interesting <clears throat> ingredient for us to also to offer unconditional love. I mentioned that in my book in one part, that sometimes we as disciples may be, uh, <laughs> we may need to over-absolutize everything in our guru and we need see no imperfection even in these details because probably we are not able to offer unconditional love. Unconditional love means even if you are mistaken, I'm loving you. And that's a real love. Real love is not waiting for, hey, call me when you are perfect and I love you. That's like, that's not very loving. <laughs> that's more a demand of the ego. Srila Samara said, perfection is a demand of the ego. Love does not demand perfection. Love demands love. It's just <laughs> so few words I, I, I can share in connection to imperfection and Krishna and the Jiva again. So let, let's not try to be, I mean, Krishna already loves us unconditionally. So it's not so much about, okay, I have to be perfect so Krishna loves me. That's not very, that's not, speaks very nicely about Krishna. He will only love me when I'm perfect. No, no, he's really loving you. You don't have to earn Krishna's love. Krishna's love is not your own personal merit. Technically speaking, we can do nothing to deserve Krishna's love. It's already there unconditionally. That's completely, that breaks all structures because in this world we move on deserving, merit. Okay, I have to do that to attain that. But he's already given that fully. So it's like, so what to do now? <laughs> Trying to reciprocate. But it's already there despite imperfection. And of course, that's the challenge. Oh, so beautiful, Krishna is loving me unconditionally despite the mess that I am. Yes, but he's also loving everyone else unconditionally despite the mess they are, and you should treat them accordingly. You should treat everyone knowing Krishna is loving each of you unconditionally. That's more challenging. It's beautiful to say, oh, nice that you're loving me unconditionally. Yeah, yeah, but everyone else also. So hopefully you relate each other accordingly. It's like, oops, that's more difficult. 
No? Because many times we don't treat each other as remembering Krishna's loving that soul and condition. Krishna's loving that soul and condition. So that's important to bring into the picture. Again, in terms of developing our relationships. Are we ready over there in the kitchen? No pressure intended, just asking. Yes, yes. I mean, we are not in a rush just to know when we're to. Yes. Yeah. When we get into this place that we have to, mm. it's, not, it's, not like, it's not our devotion. So, I mean, I didn't say that in that way, but, and I say that there's place for that in certain yeah. cases, but yeah, just clarifying. You don't have to. <laughs> Why you feel you have to? Well, like, I'm doing it as a happy, but I don't feel I want to feel like But what, well, you say, I'm doing that because I have to. Yeah. Why Why you say that? Is someone like pointing you with a gun, you have to? <laughs> I'm just, I'm not, I'm just playing with the idea, no? That yeah. probably you will say, no, because I committed to that in my, during my initiation. And therefore, I have that commitment, which is fine. I'm, again, I'm not against that. <laughs> but then you have to go, but you chose to be initiated. No? It's not, I, have, I had to accept that person as my guru. Hopefully not. <laughs> so my point is try to get boil it down to a point where you can say, I chose to, I wanted to. No? So everything is not, I have to. Okay, I have to chant my rounds because I promised to do that. Yeah, but you, you also agreed with that, which is okay, but we have to take personal response. I, I think that helps to, okay, I chose that. It was my choice, my responsibility, and there was some inspiration, hopefully, that took me to do that, no? to accept the guru, to accept the commitment of initiation. So... I felt something at that moment, let's say like that. I'm not saying you are not feeling anything now, but there was something at that moment that touched my heart in a way that I want to. I want to surrender. I want to give my heart to this person, whomever your guru may be. And from that, I want to, let's say, came some I have to. <laughs> I tried to connect the I have to to, to the I want to. No? I have to chant my 60, 16 rounds because I want to <laughs> try. No, I, I want to please my guru. I want to keep my vows. I try to find a point where you say I want to, <laughs> because if all the ways I have to, it may be complicated. I mean, you may be able to do that all your life, but it won't be from a. I understand your point. I, I, I'm not saying. You should just chant 16 rounds with full feeling. And I mean, if it's not happening, it's not happening. You, you cannot just press the button and be ecstatic. No? <laughs> and there is a place, as I say in my reply, that there are things that you know you have to do. You know that you will 
ideally you should feel I want to, but still I don't feel that. So I also don't want to go to the extreme that I will only chant when I want and I will never chant anymore, probably. You know, who knows? <laughs> but in, in, in the I have to, there has to be some some hard investment also. It's not just like mechanically going through the numbers and the getting to the 16, trying to Okay, I have to, but I want to put my heart here on some level. <laughs> on some level. Um, and connect with that. Okay, I have to do that because I love, like a mother, okay, the mother may be tired, she needs to sleep, but she has to wake up to breastfeed the baby. So she has to. She will prefer to, to sleep more, but she has to. But she has to because she chose to have a baby and because she loves her baby. So that all those things of personal responsibility, and I want, I love, helped to carry on with the I have to with renewed purpose, so to say. So I think it's important that whenever we feel I have to, okay, don't torture yourself because of that, but try to connect the I have to a few. I want to, I choose to, because I love this person, I love whatever. And, and, and I think that gives a renewed sense of purpose and engagement, whether it's with chanting or whatever, there may be any other things. You know? and, and I think that's also rediscovering the chanting, so to say, you know? because you may be chanting from a certain level and a certain place and it works, it works, it works, it works. And at, point, at one point it doesn't work. So it doesn't mean that the chanting has stopped working. It means that now you, you are being invited to chant from another level, with another idea, with another conception of the chanting, of the name. The, the other version became obsolete. No? Like we gave the example yesterday with the apps in the cell phone. It's working, it's working, it's working. No more working, you have to download the new app. So in the same way, a certain version, so to say, a certain version of Krishna consciousness works for us for some time. At some point we feel it's not working. It doesn't mean that the process collapsed. It means we are being invited to discover a higher version of Krishna consciousness, to rediscover our own tradition. And I'm saying that because I've seen devotees many times feeling, oh, this is not for me. This is not, it no longer works. No? So I have to leave I have to leave it. No, no, you have to leave the version you have experienced so far. And you have to discover a new version of that. And that will happen a few times in our life. It's not just your biggest cry, faith crisis or something. It may be happening because we are rediscovering. We are rediscovering our relationship with Krishna. We are rediscovering ourselves in that. So we are rediscovering what does it mean to chant, what does it mean to whatever, to study, to relate. Everything has to be rediscovered. It's not that it's only one way. Oh, no, Christian consciousness is not that boring. So, so maybe that's also another way of seeing it in a positive way. I'm feeling I have to. Because probably I'm, I'm, I'm addressing the chanting from a place that is no longer working. So I have to find a new place to address my chanting. So I don't feel I have to, I will feel it renewed inspiration. And sometimes we need to go deeper for that, study, get associated with people who have a deeper experience. And it's like, wow, 
Now I'm not feeling I have to. You know, I'm really drawn to that. So we are ready? Okay, we have the signal there from the gatekeeper of the kitchen. <laughs> Thank you so much to all of you for your presence, your question, your attention, your association. Shri Sri Gornitai Ki Jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramanand Haribo, Vancha Kalpataru Vyasya Kripa Sindhupya Evacha, Patita Anam Pavanebhi Vaishna Vepya Namonama, Anant Koti Vaishna Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Haribo.